Hi, I'm uh, Lee Liberman Otis. I'm the uh, director of the Federalist Society's faculty division, and I wanted to welcome everybody to what we hope will be the first of an annual uh, preview of the Supreme Court October term, uh, this one being, of course, the October term 07. Um, and uh, delighted to have everybody here. And without further ado, um, I will introduce Jan Greenberg, uh, who, of course, probably to most of you means no introduction. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, Jan is the legal correspondent for ABC News, also the author of the best-selling uh, Supreme Conflict, uh, which, which is uh, one of the great books about the United States Supreme Court. A little less well-known, perhaps, is that she's an alumna of the uh, University of Chicago Law School, which is also my alma mater, and which undoubtedly accounts for why her legal coverage is uh, so excellent. Uh, so without further ado, uh, Jan. Well, thank you very much, Lee, and thank you guys all for coming. Um, I just want to uh, kind of give a, a shout out to Lee because I know some of the things that she's been doing since joining the Federalist Society uh, sound very exciting. Um, and this panel with these quite distinguished speakers that she's brought in here today are a result of her efforts and hard work. Um, and we have talked about uh, who's going to discuss which cases and um, how we're going to break that up. And Lee has organized all that. And so I think we all really need to give Lee uh, the big round of applause. <laughs> anyway, like I said, it's my pleasure to be here. Um, I uh, uh, have covered the court since 1994. And I'm just going to say a, a few words about the last term because we obviously are here uh, to hear the panelists talking about the cases for the upcoming term, and then we're going to talk about how we think the upcoming term might be different than the past term, or if uh, we do, I certainly think it will. Uh, and then we're going to open it up for some questions as well. So um, before I, I get started, though, um, I guess I'll just kind of go. You have your introductions, and uh, everyone here uh, certainly is deserving of even more than on here, but I'm just going to give you uh, brief, just so you can see who everyone is, and they have their name tags. But Ted Cruz came in yesterday from Texas, uh, where, of course, he is the Solicitor General, argues many cases for the court, including a pretty big one uh, coming up in two weeks, right? Two weeks that, of course, we'll be discussing. Uh, then we have Greg Katsis, who is at the Justice Department, uh, also very distinguished lawyer, um, clerk for Justice Thomas, although I guess I can, you guys can just tell who all you clerk for, because, you know, all these guys are former clerks and have followed the court. Uh, for many, many years. Uh, and then if we'll go all the way down to this end, we have uh, William Otis, who until this year was counselor to the head of the DEA, and he's also been an adjunct professor at George Mason Law School. Um, next to him is Joan Larson, who, uh, again, uh, I think you may have seen and, and, and uh, noticed many of her writings. Um, you clerk for Justice Scalia, right? Is that if I'm remembering that right? And... Um, you were at Michigan. Michigan. Mm -hmm. Okay, I just saw Northwestern. I'm like, wait, no, that's where you went to undergrad. Uh, and then next to her is Glenn Nager, who is an attorney at Jones Day, chairs the firm's uh, issues and appeals practice. Um, so at any rate, uh, before we turn this uh, panel over to these distinguished speakers, I'll just say that most of you probably followed uh, this court very closely 
uh, it's obviously is a very sophisticated audience, and um, you saw uh, what the court did last term, and I would assume what it did not do last term. And I think that if you looked at some of the coverage and commentary on what the Supreme Court did last term, you might have a very different opinion than what I think actually occurred. There's no question um, that the court turned in a more conservative direction in the past term, and by that I mean a judicially conservative direction, and we all knew that was going to happen. Uh, when Justice Alito replaced Justice O'Connor, kind of the, the moderating swing vote who you know, kind of liked to lay down a bunt instead of swinging for the fences on any number of cases, we all knew that the court was going to um, turn to the right just as President Bush hoped that it would. But um, as we also saw from this past term, uh, you know, the sky is not falling uh, to, to kind of follow up on the, some of the commentary after the term. Uh, you saw the court making decisions in a number of cases that would have gone differently had O'Connor been on that court, notably in the partial birth abortion case and, and the school busing case. Uh, but you also saw that court uh, make pretty narrow decisions. Uh, it didn't overturn Roe versus Wade. It didn't overturn McCain-Feingold. It didn't say with a majority that the Constitution is colorblind. So in many ways, it was a, a court that reflected its two newest justices and their approach to the law, uh, John Roberts and Sam Alito. And um, as they testified uh, during their hearings, uh, and as we saw them, I think, this term and what really is the first full term of the Roberts Court uh, uh, kind of do in their opinions, uh, they are, are going to be much more cautious, at least early on, than the two other judicial conservatives, Scalia and Thomas. Um, and then, of course, there's the man in the middle, Anthony Kennedy. Uh, he's our new uh, swing vote and the one that we now will get to um, watch decide uh, a lot of these cases, as we saw with Justice O'Connor. He was in the majority in all the 5-4 cases, unprecedented influence for a justice uh, over the past uh, years uh, of court decisions, and he will continue to be extraordinarily influential. Um, let me rephrase that, actually. He will continue to be extraordinarily powerful, um, which I think is distinct from influential, uh, over uh, the next uh, few years to come. And I think we're going to talk about, uh, when we finish this uh, summary, uh, how that might affect, how Justice Kennedy might see the lineup of cases this term differently uh, so that the commentary that you saw at the end of this term that uh, this was a um, terrifyingly conservative court that was running roughshod over the rights and civil liberties of all Americans and was siding with corporations against uh, the good working person. Uh, certainly, uh, and again, as hyperbolic and hysterical and overstated as I believe that was, um, I think this term, Justice Kennedy will not be going along with uh, some of the conservatives on decisions that, that the court already has on its docket. Um, so anyway, uh, let me first turn it over. I don't have the order of our speakers, which is not very good for a moderator, I guess. Lee, who's going first? Um, I, I think Greg is going first. I have it, but I've got to go get it out of my note. Okay, so you come up here, Greg. I will get my... Greg's first. I thought you said Glenn. Um, and I'll get my order. So first we'll start with Greg Katsas to summarize the cases. I'm going to talk about uh, Boumediene versus Bush, which is the Guantanamo detention case. Um, it's a hard one to do in 15 minutes, but I'll, I'll do my best. Um, 
The issue in Boumediene is about the procedures the government has to use in order to detain aliens um, as enemy combatants in wartime at, um, outside the country at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Um, it is not about the power of the government to detain en um, enemy combatants in wartime, which is well settled and um, and um, it is not about the power of the government to apply that wartime set of principles to the conflict with Al-Qaeda, which, which was um, settled by the Supreme Court in, in both the Hamdi case and, uh, and the Hamdan case. Um, it's just about procedures. Um, it is a case that, that is not about citizens. It's only about aliens. It's not about detentions in the United States and it is not about detentions during peacetime. Um, there are a couple of federal statutes, the, one, the Detainee Treatment Act and the Military Commissions Act, which expressly uh, prevent detainees in those circumstances from seeking judicial review in a United States district court through habeas corpus. And the question in Boumediene is the constitutionality of those statutes under the suspension clause of the Constitution. Um, in order to have a, a really good sense of what's at issue, you need to understand a little bit of case law and statutory background. Um, the Guantanamo detentions began in 2002 when the law, at least um, from our perspective in the administration, seemed pretty well settled and pretty favorable to the wartime operations that the president wanted to conduct um, with respect to procedures for detaining wartime aliens, the um, longstanding tradition had been that it's okay to use military tribunals and that the process before military tribunals um, is a fairly truncated one. Um, this issue comes up in the context of the Geneva Convention um, where in conflicts that are covered by the Geneva Convention, the government as in this conflict any government fighting a war needs to be able to figure out who are the combatants um, fighting against the government and who are the innocent people um, swept up by mistake in the fog of war. Um, and those processes um, are addressed generally in the Geneva Convention, more specifically in Army regulations implementing the Geneva Convention. They are very truncated. They don't look anything like an Article III criminal trial. Um, and with respect to judicial review, the state of the law in 2002 um, under a World War II era precedent called Johnson versus Eisentrager seemed to us clear for at least three propositions. One, that the habeas, the federal habeas statute does not extend to aliens held outside the country. Two, that the um, suspension clause of the Constitution doesn't similarly extend to that class of aliens, and third, that the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution, which has the Due Process Clause, um, likewise doesn't extend to aliens in that circumstance. So on, on both the question of what procedures um, can be used and on the judicial review um, question, we felt pretty comfortable at the time. Um, in 2004, the Supreme Court rendered two decisions that started to fundamentally shape the, the current legal um, framework. Um, the first is a case called Rasul, 
which involves the aliens held at Guantanamo. And in Rasul, the Supreme Court um, overruled the statutory holding of Eisentrager, um, made clear that the federal habeas statute applies to aliens at Guantanamo, giving them an entree into federal district court to challenge their procedures. Um, there was no constitutional holding in Rasul. There are conceivable arguments one way or the other about implications of Rasul, both for the Fifth Amendment and for the suspension clause. Uh, but there's no direct holding on any constitutional question. And there's also a lack of clarity in Rasul about whether the reasoning is limited to Guantanamo or extends the habeas statute worldwide. But what is clear is that um, Rasul extends the statute at least to Guantanamo, where the government, of course, had been holding um, hundreds of suspected al-Qaeda terrorists. Um, the second relevant opinion is called Hamdi. Hamdi was a U.S. citizen held in this country. Given those circumstances, we conceded all along that Hamdi had a, a right to file a habeas corpus petition and had Fifth Amendment rights under the Constitution. And the only question in Hamdi was the extent of Fifth Amendment protection to someone in his circumstances. And the court rendered a, a somewhat split decision, but favorable to the government to the extent the court made clear that the procedures the government could use to detain a citizen enemy combatant in this country um, uh, need not um, in any significant way follow criminal trial-like procedures, um, which is the model um, our opponents in these cases constantly like to invoke. Um, they made fairly clear that use of military tribunals in order to adjudicate status to separate the combatants from the civilians would be permissible. They had a citation to the regulations I mentioned a second ago implementing the Geneva Convention and a strong hint that that model would be constitutionally sufficient with respect to Hamdi, um, not a square holding because um, there hadn't been that process in place, but a strong hint to that, um, to that effect. Um, in response to those decisions, um, obviously our level of concern um, went up a little bit. Um, um, the Defense Department, um, uh, both because of the changed legal framework and because of um, greater time available to sift through um, the population at Guantanamo in the wake of those decisions, um, created something called the Combatant Status Review Tribunal which is the kind of military process mentioned in Hamdi. Um, the process was designed not for citizens in this country, but aliens at Guantanamo, and designed to afford those aliens greater rights than um, are available under the Geneva Convention analog. And the thinking in terms of um, making sure we comply with Supreme Court standards is fairly obvious that if the Geneva Convention standards would be good enough even to detain a citizen in this country as an enemy combatant in wartime, a fortiori, procedures that were more protective of detainees should be more than good enough to detain aliens outside the country. Um, we ran every Guantanamo detainee through a combatant status review tribunal. Many of them were held to be enemy combatants. Uh, about 40 of them 
were found to be not enemy combatants in light of the uh, uh, greater um, examination of the evidence, and those folks have all been released. Um, at the same time, we were um, proceeding along the track of military adjudications. The detainees, in the wake of Rasul, began filing habeas petitions en masse. We faced a situation in which there were hundreds of pending cases at Guantanamo, um, significant logistical problems, and more importantly, security problems for the Department of Defense, managing what is, after all, a foreign military base in time of war, dealing with detainees um, um, with obvious security concerns and such. Um, Congress, in the wake of that, to us, untenable situation, responded with the statute that's primarily at issue in Boumediene, a statute called the Detainee Treatment Act, which does two relevant things. The first is it expressly repeals the habeas corpus statute with respect to aliens outside the country held as enemy combatants. The second thing Congress did was in place of habeas corpus, it provided the detainees with a different mechanism for judicial review in which they could seek review of the military determination that each alien is a combatant in the D.C. Circuit and it specified standards of review. It allowed um, aliens in that circumstance to raise any constitutional claim they would like, any statutory claim they would like. Um, in addition, it allowed aliens to um, claim that the military tribunal failed to follow its own procedures. And finally, the statute allowed aliens to seek some degree of fact review of the ultimate determination of, of enemy combatancy. Um, there was then um, an intervening Supreme Court decision in Hamdan which construed those judicial review provisions not to apply to pending cases somewhat implausibly in our view, but in any event, that aspect of Hamdan was then overruled by the second statute at issue here, the Military Commissions Act, which makes the D.C. Circuit judicial review scheme expressly applicable to pending cases and in our view um, forecloses any, any serious contention that the statute, the judicial review statutes Congress has put in place um, do not apply um, to these cases. Um, in the wake of that statutory scheme, um, the pending cases, all of the pending habeas cases after Rasul um, would be subject to dismissal on the strength of the Detainee Treatment Act and the Military Commissions Act, assuming those statutes are constitutional, and the detainees then um, obviously retreated to constitutional challenges to the habeas stripping provisions in the statute, um, primarily under the suspension clause. That set of issues got teed up to the D.C. Circuit into consolidated cases called Aloda and Boumediene, um, and um, we prevailed um, we prevailed in the D.C. Circuit. Um, the Supreme Court first denied review and then granted review. Um, now has Boumediene and Aloda pending. Um, we made two levels of argument um, in the in the D.C. Circuit. I'll, I'll tell you what they are and I'll tell you why we think we're right. Um, I'm not going. I'm not going to um, hazard a prediction on what the court might do. Um, our broader level of argument was simply that aliens 
outside the outside of United States sovereign territory have no constitutional rights. Um, we think that's well supported as a matter of precedent, not only in the constitutional holding of Eisentrager, which was undisturbed by the statutory holding of Rasul, um, but also under a long line of other precedents, um, including a, re a recent Fourth Amendment case called Verdugo and 200 years of tradition. Um, we think that is not only the precedentially correct answer, but the um, intuitively correct answer, because imagine a world in which the Constitution does apply outside this country to aliens. You, know, you either have the Constitution applying with full force, which leads to absurdities like knock and announce rules before Marines go into caves in Pakistan and Afghanistan, Miranda warnings for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, all of the all of the absurd hypotheticals that our opponents um, say is not the consequence of, of their legal theories. Um, but then the only intermediate alternative is to um, have federal judges sort of decide case by case how to turn on and off the Constitution according to perceived real or perceived exigencies of wartime in some kind of contextual assessment, and frankly, we don't think judges have ever done that or are well suited to do that, and the only rule that makes sense is a categorical one that the Constitution doesn't apply, leaving the United States subject to um, restraints imposed through the political processes, restraints imposed by statute, restraints imposed by treaty, restraints imposed by diplomacy, um, not a blank check for executive action, but not the straitjacket of um, constitutional interpretation by federal judges um, not well situated to make the relevant judgments. Um, with, respect to, and with respect to our narrower argument, that was the basis we prevailed in the D.C. Circuit. Um, categorical rule, constitution, including the suspension clause, doesn't apply to aliens abroad. Um, we have a narrower set of arguments that even if the detainees have habeas rights, um, and even if on the merits they have Fifth Amendment rights, that the scheme of military adjudication followed by judicial review is an adequate substitute, constitutionally adequate substitute for habeas corpus under the suspension clause and satisfies whatever Fifth Amendment standards by hypothesis might apply. Um, the guts of our position on that point is that um, you have to measure um, uh, constitutional adequacy by reference to wartime norms. Supreme Court has already said that it is appropriate for the political branches to apply wartime norms to the conflict with Al-Qaeda. When you apply those norms and think of the situation at Guantanamo as one involving wartime status determinations as opposed to something that constitutionally must resemble um, criminal trials in this country in Article III courts. Um, once you pick the right baseline of comparison, we think the existing scheme um, does quite well. As I said a minute ago, the um, procedures used in the military to adjudicate enemy combatancy afford greater protections than the Supreme Court in Hamdi said would be sufficient with respect to citizens in this country and greater protections than what presumably would be the gold standard under the Geneva Convention. Um, um, 
So we're, we're very comfortable at the level of military adjudication. With respect to judicial review, again, if you look at the, the right background is wartime cases, and the most opposite cases are the World War II habeas cases, cases where there was habeas jurisdiction because a detainee either was held in the United States or held in a United States territory. In those cases, the habeas statute as construed in the 40s did apply. Supreme Court conducted judicial review, but it was extraordinarily deferential. It was limited essentially to the jurisdiction of the military tribunal, arguably through expansive definitions of jurisdiction, picked up broad-gauged legal and constitutional challenges to the military process. Here, all of that is preserved. An alien can make whatever constitutional or statutory claims the alien wants, whether, whether broad or fine-gauged. In addition, the alien can seek review for compliance with the tribunal's own procedures and can seek sufficiency review sort of along a Jackson versus Virginia model. Both of those kinds of review um, were things the Supreme Court in the World War II cases expressly said that habeas petitioners are not entitled to. And the World War II cases involved um, criminal defendants on trial for their lives. If that principle is true in that context, it is surely true with respect to the non-criminal um, detention of combatants um, um, independent of any criminal process. Um, the one thing that combatants don't get under the existing scheme is a first instance adjudication in a United States district court as opposed to a military tribunal. Um, but that's just another way of saying that it's constitutionally permissible to use a tribunal and that proposition is um, as old as warfare. It's been reaffirmed in the context of the Al-Qaeda conflict in Hamdi. Um, and even in general habeas cases, Supreme Court in a, a very pro-habeas opinion called St. Cyr um, said that, of course, you can use, you can have the executive adjud adjudicating the question of detention and on judicial review, um, review of the facts is... Um, very limited, um, if any. That's the model we have. Um, we think it's defensible on the law. Um, we think it's defensible as a matter of um, uh, foreign policy and American security, um, and we um, very much hope that the Supreme Court will find it to be constitutional. Thank you. Thanks very much, Greg. Um, Next, Ted Cruz is going to talk about the uh, Medellin case, uh, which will be argued, as I said, two weeks from today. Is that Well, anyway, you guys can figure it out in the calendars. Um, and, of course, uh, like uh, the discussion of Greg's case uh, before it, uh, this is a case Ted knows very well. So, Ted, thanks. Thank you, Jan. The case of Medellin versus Texas has had a long and involved history. This is the second time it's been up at the U.S. Supreme Court. It was up there in 2005. When that particular argument began, the way we began the argument was by saying the court need not and indeed should not address the many interesting and even fascinating issues that swirl about this case. At which point, some 20 words into my argument, Justice Scalia interrupted. 
and said, well, they are interesting, aren't they? <laughs> to which I responded, indeed, and this case may well launch a thousand law review articles, but the court should decide it on a simple and straightforward statutory basis. Well, I'm pleased to say in 2005, the court ended up agreeing with us somewhat. And 5-4, the court dismissed Medellin's appeal and tossed it out. But as, as is true in so many litigation cases, that was a temporary victory, and we now find ourselves back before the Supreme Court. And this time, those interesting and fascinating issues are squarely presented to the court, and I think it's quite likely they will address it this time. Let me step back and tell you a history of this case and, and how we got to where we are today. It started over a decade ago in Houston, Texas, with a rather horrific crime. Two teenage girls, age 14 and 16, had the ill fortune of stumbling into a gang initiation one evening as they were walking home uh, from a friend's house. Six gang members proceeded to gang rape and then murder these two teenage girls. It was a crime that even among capital crimes stands out for its, its gruesomeness and barbarity. The individuals who committed the crime were apprehended very soon thereafter. They confessed to their crime. This particular individual this case is about, Jose Ernesto Medellin, confessed in writing after waiving his Miranda rights in writing and described in bone-chilling detail these little girls pleading for their lives. He also described how he saved from that night the Mickey Mouse watch the youngest of the girls was wearing as a trophy from that evening. Medellin, unsurprisingly, was convicted, and he was sentenced to death. And that conviction was affirmed all the way up. At which point, on state habeas, Medellin introduced a new claim into his case. On state habeas, the claim he introduced is that he was protected by the Vienna Convention on Consular Affairs. The Vienna Convention, as you all know, is a, is a treaty that binds the United States, that the United States signed some four decades ago, that provides that foreign nationals, when arrested, have a right to contact their consulate, they have a right to receive assistance from their consulate, and the arresting authorities have an obligation to inform the foreign national of that right. Medellin, although he's lived virtually his entire life in the United States, has gone to uh, American public schools his whole life, he was born in, born in Mexico, and so technically speaking, he is, in fact, a Mexican national. There's no dispute that the Harris County police officials who arrested him did not inform him of his Vienna Convention rights. Now, the ordinary rule, as you all know, in U.S. criminal procedure is if you have a claim, you have an obligation to raise it at trial. And if you don't raise a claim at trial, the usual rule is it's waived. You can't come back four years later on habeas and say, you know, that trial we had four years ago, I should have raised the following claim. That's the usual rule. In Medellin's case, he had two lawyers that were appointed and paid for by the state who vigorously represented them, and they didn't say a word about this claim at the trial or on appeal. If they had, it would have been very simple. If you could imagine how this would have played out at trial, if his counsel said, your honor, my client has a right to contact the Mexican consulate, the judge would have said, fine, call the Mexican consulate, claim would have gone away. But he raised it instead on habeas four years later. The claim was rejected because the U.S. Supreme Court in 1998 
had squarely held that claims under the Vienna Convention, just like virtually every other kind of claim, just like constitutional claims, are waived if they're not raised at trial. And so under that binding Supreme Court precedent, the federal district court rejected his claim. Now, at this point, the case starts to take one of its more unusual turns. Because at this point, the nation of Mexico sued the United States in the world court, which is the International Court of Justice, the judicial arm of the United Nations. And the basis for this suit in the world court was the claimed violation of the Vienna Convention because of the application of the procedural default doctrine to Medellin's claims and to the claims of a number of other similarly situated Mexican nationals. In 2004, the world court ruled in favor of Mexico. It issued a decision in what's called the Avena case that has an unprecedented order. It orders the United States to review and reconsider the convictions and death penalties of 51 Mexican nationals on death row. It is the first time in this his the history of this nation that any foreign tribunal has ever asserted the authority to directly command the U.S. justice system. And even more so, it is the first time that any foreign tribunal has asserted the authority to set aside final criminal convictions and to directly assert its authority over courts, Article III courts in the United States. Medellin's case was the very first case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court after the World Court decision. That was the argument we talked about in 2005. Now, why did the court 5-4 toss out his appeal? Well, the court did so because of the second unusual twist in the history of this case, which is on February 28th of 2005, the United States, we were very pleased, filed a brief supporting Texas and reaffirming its position for four decades that the Vienna Convention provides no individual rights that can be enforceable in a U.S. court. That's been the position of every administration since this treaty was signed. The position of the State Department has consistently been the avenue for enforcement of this treaty is resort to the Security Council. It's what the treaty explicitly provides, that it is a political and diplomatic route through the Security Council. Unfortunately, the United States brief didn't end there. The first four-fifths of the brief were fabulous. <laughs> the final fifth of it describes a two-paragraph memorandum that was signed that same day. It is a memorandum signed by George W. Bush addressed to the United States Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez. In that memorandum, it describes that the president has determined that the United States will comply with the world court decision and that the way the United States will do so is that the president is ordering the state courts to obey the decision of the world court. It is, in my judgment, a breathtaking order. It further explains, as did the United States brief at the time, that the United States continues to agree that no treaty we have signed requires this, that none of the treaties at issue require this, not the Vienna Convention, not the treaty giving the World Court authority to adjudicate this matter. But nonetheless, the United States asserts the authority under the inherent powers 
over foreign affairs in Article 2 of the Constitution, and in particular, in aid of international comedy. Spelled I-T-Y, not E-D-Y. The U.S. Supreme Court dismissed the case, and Medellin went to state court, armed with the president's determination, and told the state court, I get my review. And set aside any state law to the contrary, which is the United States' position as well, that any state statutes are to be preempted by the order that he sent to the attorney general. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals unanimously rejected Medellin's claim and concluded that the president lacks the authority under the U.S. Constitution to issue this order. That's the case the court has granted cert. Now, I will not remotely pretend to be an impartial observer on this case. <laughs> but I will observe that I think the arguments against the United States' assertion of authority are broad and compelling. In fact, this case, some of what makes it so fascinating is that it implicates every conceivable axis of the structural limitations on our government. It implicates president vis-a-vis -vis Congress. It implicates president vis-a-vis -vis the courts. It implicates the federal government vis-a-vis -vis the states. It implicates international law vis-a-vis -vis domestic law. And in what I like to call a Mobius twist, it implicates the president vis-a-vis -vis the state judiciary. And Texas's brief, we square, square on. We find ourselves in an unusual position. Texas is not regularly litigating against the United States. <laughs> and sadly enough, the United States will appear alongside Medellin at the argument on October 10th. And so Texas is directly engaging. And our arguments, very briefly summarized, are as follows. First of all, this violates the basic separation of powers between the President and Congress. When the Senate ratified these treaties, it did so under the explicit understanding they were not self-executing. The State Department told the Senate, this will have no effect on domestic law. On state law or federal law, it will not set aside any state law. And the Senate was very explicit. That was its understanding, both the Vienna Convention and the optional protocol, which is the treaty that subjected us to the world court. The authority of the president is effectively to unilaterally make that treaty self-executed, to take a treaty that the Senate ratified under one condition and to make it in, to instead accord it with preemptive force. And that we argue, is contrary to longstanding Supreme Court precedent that the president cannot do so. Secondly, it violates the restrictions and the separations between the executive and the judiciary. It is a rather remarkable concept because two terms ago, the United States Supreme Court decided the Sanchez-Yamez case. Now, Sanchez-Yamez also concerned the Vienna Convention, and in it, the United States Supreme Court squarely held that the Avena decision of the World Court is not enforceable in U.S. courts. That's a majority holding of the U.S. Supreme Court. The position of the Department of Justice, who appeared in the Court of Criminal Appeals, is that the Court of Criminal Appeals, the Texas State Court, 
when faced with two ostensible sources of legal authority, a majority opinion of the Supreme Court of the United States or the order from the president should obey the president's order and not the Supreme Court's decision in Sanchez-Yamas. And that, we argue, is fundamentally contrary. It's not often in litigating a case that you actually get to cite as a major authority Marbury versus Madison. <laughs> but as we observe in our brief, it is emphatically not the province and duty of the president to say what the law is. And that is precisely what the president is asserting. Is the authority to determine as a matter of federal law a question different from how the Supreme Court is interpreted. And the president lacks the unilateral authority to make federal law that is preemptive on the states that sets aside neutral, generally applicable principles of criminal law. And beyond that, there is the question of the states. I'm reminded of an early conversation I had with an, with an alumnus of the Department of State who asked me in the process of this case, well, why doesn't the president just call the governor of Texas and, and order him to pardon these guys? <laughs> and recognizing that this individual was an alumnus of Foggy Bottom, I, I was trying to give some leeway. <laughs> but I said, well, that would raise rather massive constitutional issues, don't you think? And his response, and I quote, was, I don't follow. <laughs> and I said, well, the governor of Texas doesn't work for the president. <laughs> to which his response again was, I don't follow. The same is true for the state courts. And indeed, one of the unusual things we do in our brief is we have a section that is, that is entitled, the principles urged by the United States readily admit no reasonable limiting principle. And we go through, if the president is right, that with the stroke of a pen, by writing a two-paragraph memorandum to a cabinet official, the president can set aside any state law he or she deems contrary to international comedy, it works a dramatic change in the authority of the presidency. And one question I've observed, you know, we ended up being supported on this by a range of amici, including law professors. We had a law professor's brief that Ernie Young at the University of Texas drafted that was joined by John Yoo and Erwin Chemerinsky. <laughs> now, for those of y'all that know John and Erwin, there are not many issues on which they break common bread. But I would suggest that if one has the two of them together, that says something about the breadth of the power being asserted on the other side. We also had a state attorney's general brief that was joined by 28 states and Puerto Rico, which is including Attorney General Jerry Brown in California. We also had a, a brief by former senior officials at the U.S. Department of Justice that Chuck Cooper wrote for us. It was joined by two former U.S. attorneys general, a former solicitor general, and three former heads of the Office of Legal Counsel, all of whom are not shy at all in defending a vigorous presidency. 
and all of whom believe this president's exercise of this power is egregiously beyond the bounds of presidential authority. Now, the reason why we are getting common ground between John Yu and Erwin Chemerinsky, between Jerry Brown and Ed Meese, another two that rarely find common ground, is because the potential precedent, if this president's assertion of authority is upheld in this case, it opens the door for enormous mischief from presidents from either party. One thought experiment I have asked of some of some of our friends on the left is to say, imagine, if you will, what a president could do with this power. And I try to pick the best boogeyman I can to terrify a friend on the left. So I say, imagine President Dick Cheney. After bringing the smelling salts and reviving whoever I'm speaking to, I say, what exactly do you think this president might be inclined to do if you have the power to flick state laws off the books on a simple assertion of international comedy? I would suggest one of the first victims on the chopping block might well be the California emissions laws. Look, if you had the ability to say, you know, look, we're arguing internationally that we can't comply with the Kyoto Treaty. And yet these pesky states keep persisting in doing things that really undermine our argument because they're trying to do it despite the fact that we say we can't. I therefore decree <laughs> California emissions laws are no more. <laughs> or for that matter, tort reform. We have allies throughout the country that have large corporations engaged in international and global commerce. Getting slammed with punitive damage in some backward state is really contrary. <laughs> I therefore decree punitive damages shall be no more. On the flip side, to our friends on the right, I suggest what a Democratic president might do, what, what a President Hillary might at least consider doing. And there are all sorts of options under trees. One that comes up often when people think about this is state marriage and adoption laws. It is quite problematic as a matter of international comedy with some of our allies that many states, in fact, most of the states right now, persist in what some deem to be backwards marriage laws that don't recognize gay unions. And yet if the president has this authority to forward international comedy, the president could set aside the marriage laws of every state. Yet another example, many of our allies have no death penalty. A president can say it would further international comedy big time, which is a technical legal term, big time, if we set aside the death penalty laws. Yes, they were democratically adopted by legislatures in the, in the several states, but I, the president, in the inherent unilateral authority, not with going to Congress, not with going to anyone, but with bringing out Microsoft Word and writing a two-paragraph memo to a cabinet member, <laughs> hereby set aside these laws. In my judgment, any of those scenarios are downright scary. That is not the legitimate constitutional role of the president. That's the argument Texas is presenting, and we are hopeful the court will agree. Thank you. Thanks, Ted. Um, next up is Glenn Nager, who, as I said, is uh, chair of the Issues and Appeals section of Jones Day. He is also a very experienced oral advocate 
having argued 12 cases before the court, and I think most impressively, uh, he is the general counsel of the USGA, the United States Golf Association. So a very good person to know on any number of levels. Um, And he's going to talk about Stone Ridge, uh, another case obviously he knows very well, uh, which will be argued not two weeks two weeks from yesterday, Tuesday, which is I think two weeks from yesterday. So anyway, those of you have anyway, Doug Glenn, thank you. Thank you, Jan. Um, Following Ted, I don't know whether we should ask someone to come up and present the other side or whether I should call the clerk's office to get a ticket to see his argument. (laughs) Um, I'm talking about the third important uh, security case on the docket. Uh, Greg Greg and Ted obviously addressed the physical security of our country and the security of our Constitution. And uh, according to the parties in Stone Ridge, this case presents the security of our economy. Uh, the, the parties have radically different views of the secu- what uh, uh, the security of our economy requires with uh, the petitioners in the case arguing that Section 10B um, of the 1934 Securities Act needs to be read uh, to allow an implied private right of action against any company that is involved in a fraud that itself commits fraud that then results um, in a deceptive act or manipulation of a purchase or sale of securities. And that they say absent uh, that implied cause of action being recognized, the integrity of our markets will be impaired and that our economy will suffer. And the respondents in the case argue the contrary, that if that implied cause of action is recognized, it will lead to uh, such rampant abuse Uh, by the plaintiff's bar that it will impair the ability of U.S. companies and foreign companies to operate uh, in the U.S. economy and thus will uh, undermine our economy in a dramatic uh, fashion. Um, uh, The the facts of the case uh, are very simple and are as follows. Uh, The uh, respondents in the case uh, sold the boxes you put on the top of TV sets uh, to a company called Charter uh, Communications. And according to the allegations in the complaint, uh, uh, they sold those boxes for more than their going rate uh, and agreed in exchange that they would purchase advertising uh, from Charter because Charter was not meeting its revenue projections uh, uh, was worried about the impact that would have on its stock price. And by uh, entering into a deal uh, where uh, it was paid more for the boxes than it would otherwise pay, but it would get that money back in the purchase of advertising, it could inflate its revenues and capitalize uh, the expense, which would result in uh, expenses in later uh, income periods. Uh, They further agreed, according to the allegations of the complaint, to backdate uh, the contracts uh, because Arthur Anderson, the accountants for Charter, otherwise would not allow the revenue recognition that the structure of the transaction uh, was intended to accomplish. And thus the allegations of the complaint are that uh, the the respondents uh, knowingly and intentionally participated in an act of fraud which uh, resulted in the manipulation uh, of the prices of charter securities. 
and the plaintiffs filed a suit alleging what is characterized in the briefs as scheme liability under Section 10 on the theory that the respondents were complicit in this scheme to mislead charters, auditors, and therefore defraud its investors. The district court granted a motion to dismiss, which is why we have to take those allegations as true for purposes of understanding the issue in the case. And the district court dismissed the case on the basis of a 1994 Supreme Court decision, the Central Bank case, in which the Supreme Court, in a five-to-four decision written by Justice Kennedy, held that there was no implied private right of action under Section 10b for a claim of aiding and abetting. And the district court held that what the plaintiffs in this case were asserting under another name was an aiding and abetting claim. That decision went up to the Eighth Circuit, and the Eighth Circuit affirmed. The Eighth Circuit said that the Supreme Court in Central Bank distinguished between primary violators of the securities laws, those who themselves make deceptive statements or make material omissions when they have a duty to disclose, and found there was no primary violation alleged in the complaint in this case because there was no allegation that the respondents had made any misleading statements whatsoever to Charter. Charter understood exactly what was going on, and that they had made no misleading statements or no material omission with a duty to disclose to any investor. In fact, there was no allegation in the complaint that the investor plaintiffs were even aware of these transactions. And so it, too, held this was at most an aiding and abetting claim, which was not legally cognizable after Central Bank. And so the case presents essentially two questions to the court. One is whether, as posed by the petitioners, whether or not nonverbal, nonwritten deceptive conduct is the basis for a private right of action claim under Section 10b. And secondly, whether or not the reliance element of a 10b claim is satisfied on the allegations of this case. The first issue is essentially a nonissue, partly because although both the Solicitor General and the petitioners say the Eighth Circuit held that nonverbal, nonwritten conduct was not a basis for a claim under Section 10b, the respondents say that's a misconstruction of the Eighth Circuit opinion. And having read it myself, I can understand why they make that argument. But in any event, they're not disputing that nonverbal, nonwritten deceptive conduct is a basis for a claim. What the respondents say is that the statute requires that the deceptive conduct be in connection with the sale or purchase of a security, which the statute's language does say, and that this wasn't in connection, the alleged conduct wasn't done in connection with the purchase or sale of security. Whether or not the SG who filed in support of the respondents on the judgment but against the respondents on this issue argues that the claim wasn't raised, the respondents filed a supplemental brief pointing to all the places where they think they did raise it. Unclear to me whether the court will reach that question because the SG joined with the respondents in saying that the reliance element of a securities claim is not satisfied here. Plaintiffs argue in the case that reliance is established by pointing to any fraudulent conduct that is in the chain of events that leads to deception of investors. And the respondents and the Solicitor General argue in response that 
that is uh, uh, too attenuated a theory uh, for reliance, that reliance uh, requires at least awareness of the conduct upon which uh, a investor plaintiff is saying they relied, and here it's undisputed for purposes of this case that there was no allegation that the plaintiffs were uh, aware of these transactions. And if the court agrees with that argument, it very likely won't get to the uh, question of whether or not uh, the misconduct that's alleged here was in connection with the purchase or sale of security. Uh, this question, ha this case has brought out a avalanche of amicus briefs. In addition to the Solicitor General, the plaintiffs uh, have an amicus brief from 32 states led by the states of Ohio and Texas. Uh, be interesting to hear Ted talk about this case. Um, I wonder if he'd have the same passion. Uh, <laughs> uh, as, um, and uh, an amicus brief by some very uh, distinguished professors of corporation law. I'd say that all of these amicus briefs have in common the following. They point to uh, Enron, Global Crossing, and various other uh, um, um, uh, notorious uh, uh, situations in which investors lost a lot of money uh, and allegations of fraud were made. And the claim is that uh, if this claim uh, isn't recognized, those cases couldn't have proceeded. And their basic thesis is, is that here, taking the allegations is true, the respondents in the case knowingly participated in deceptive conduct and that deceptive conduct is inseparable from the deception that was actually practiced upon the investors. Of course, the respondents in their amici have a completely different view of the situation. They point out that there are two express cause of action provisions um, in the securities laws, and they don't authorize uh, secondary liability claims of this type. The Solicitor General points out that in the wake of central bank Congress, visited this question as to whether or not there should be a private right of action uh, for aiding or abetting or facilitating a violation of the securities laws and declined uh, to create such a private right of action, but rather merely conferred authority upon the SEC uh, to pursue aiding and abetting claims. Um, there's a, uh, in the amicus briefs in support of the respondents, in addition to the SG's brief, there are briefs from former SEC officials and finance professors arguing that merely enabling securities fraud is just a classic case of secondary conduct, which is not uh, contemplated by central bank. Um, Carter Phillips has filed, a, I think, a very well-written brief for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, um, arguing about what some of the adverse economic effects would be uh, from uh, allowing these kinds of claims. Um, central bank is obviously pivotal uh, to this case. So if one of the themes from last term is, is that uh, whether, he's the most whether he's influential or not, he's powerful. Since Justice Kennedy wrote uh, Central Bank uh, and it was a 5-4 decision, he likely is going to be uh, the decisive vote uh, in this case. Um, and uh, the question will be whether he thinks there is a difference that's material to the decision of this case. And there is one powerful difference between the two cases. In Central Bank, it was conceded that the party alleged to engage in aiding and abetting had itself committed no deceptive acts. 
And here it is assumed that uh, the respondents uh, committed deceptive acts because that's the basis upon which the case comes to the court. And will Justice Kennedy view the scope of the implied private right of action that he read narrowly in Central Bank more broadly where the uh, party resisting uh, the recognition of the claim itself comes to the court um, uh, wearing uh, the, the clothes of someone who is assumed to have committed deceptive acts. Uh, for the rest of the world, this is a little bit like a um, being in a bad neighborhood at night. Uh, um, what what the, the amicus briefs in support of the respondents are concerned about is not the respondents and its alleged deception. They're concerned about if you're in that neighborhood at night being assumed that you're either guilty or that you're dead. Uh, and they want to be neither. Uh, this case raises dramatic implications for two different parts of the business community. One part, obviously, uh, the part that's involved in the financial services industry, whether it be lawyers or ratings firms like Standard & Poor's or uh, banks that uh, facilitate uh, financings, uh, that they don't have the uh, capacity, they would say, to do the due diligence reviews uh, that are necessary in order to know what someone who they're entering into a commercial transaction with is telling its auditors. Uh, for the, uh, the rest of the economy, uh, the corporate community is quite concerned because uh, it's not a matter of doing due diligence on transactions. It's a matter of how you negotiate transactions, that the people who negotiate transactions for one company with another, as allegedly occurred here in uh, this instance where the allegations are that the negotiators for the respondents knowingly and intentionally negotiated a deal that facilitated fraud is those are not the people in the business of in the respondents who have any knowledge of the securities laws or have any training in the securities laws and so you'd have to have a dramatic revamping of compliance functions um, in corporate America in order to create monitoring network networks or training networks uh, for those parts of the workforce because it's not about your own securities which is what your compliance functions are all oriented toward it's about the compliance with the securities laws of other companies. And that is why I think that the business community is concerned. However the case comes out, it will certainly be in the next edition of uh, Law School Casebooks. Um, and uh, uh, I think that's what the case is about. Thanks, Glenn. Um, next up, we have Bill Otis, who uh, uh, was the uh, chief of the appellate division for 18 years at the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of Virginia, and he's argued more than 400, no, 100. God, I just get carried away. Uh, he's argued more than 100 cases before the, uh, the Fourth Circuit. So he is um, really ideally uh, situated to talk about the, the next two cases we're going to talk about, which are the uh, sentencing cases, Kimbrough and Gall, uh, which are being argued next Tuesday, I think. Anyway, thanks, Bill. Thanks very much, Jan. <clears throat> Just to say at the outset, as, as Ted was talking about uh, the Medellin case, I couldn't help um, thinking while he gave his discussion, where are all the voices that have so criticized George Bush for all these years about executive unilateralism? I haven't heard a single word 
from them on that subject um, uh, when the Medellin case holds into view. Well, that's his case. My, my, my case is concerned federal sentencing, which is now very much on the, on the front burner, I'm afraid. That the question presented by these two cases, Kimbrough and Gall, is to what extent and under what circumstances a federal judge may depart from a guideline sentence he was never obliged to impose in the first place. Now, it may strike you that that question doesn't make any sense. (laughs) All I can say is just wait until you see the answer. (laughs) These cases arise in what has turned out to be the chaotic aftermath of an earlier Supreme Court sentencing case by the name of Booker. In Booker, the court found by a five to four majority that the federal sentencing guidelines, which had been operating pretty successfully for almost 20 years uh, as a mandatory system, violated a defendant's Sixth Amendment right uh, to a jury determination of each fact that could increase his sentence from one guidelines range to a higher range. Now, a very different five to four majority in that same case decided that there would be a twofold remedy for this perceived constitutional violation. The first part of the remedy was that the sentencing guidelines would become advisory rather than mandatory. And the second part was to instruct the courts of appeals to review sentences from now on merely under a reasonableness standard, a concept to which um, the court could not and did not give any very specific content. In essence, the Supreme Court in Booker rewrote the Sentencing Reform Act, which had established the sentencing guidelines, to establish its own estimate, or some of the more cynical of us might say, its own desires about what Congress should have done in enacting a Sentencing Reform Act. It did it, again, to address this perceived Sixth Amendment problem. The court recognized, however, that the sentencing guidelines now advisory would sacrifice some of the important virtues that a mandatory sentencing guidelines system had had up until then. Those virtues are quite important, and I want to go through them. They were enhanced predictability, both for the government and the defendant, more consistency, so you had less luck of the draw sentencing, which you had had in the system before the Sentencing Reform Act, increased visibility so that everyone would know what factors were taken account of in sentencing and to what extent, and accountability, that is serious accountability for sentencing in the courts of appeals. This According this latter disadvantage, the reduction in accountability on appeal uh, was, was particularly difficult because when you displace the pre-existing standard with a mere reasonableness standard, you are entering no man's land. The previous standard, when the guidelines were mandatory, were that a departure from a guideline sentence could stand Uh, only if it was based on a factor that the uh, sentencing commission, a factor of a kind or to a degree that the sentencing commission did not take account of in formulating the sentencing range. 
and now it's replaced with this, quote, reasonableness standard, which, which, as you will see, turns out to mean anything or perhaps more correctly turns out to mean nothing. It didn't take long for the um, Booker chickens to start coming home to roost. The first chicken arrived last term in a case by the name of Rita. Um, uh, again, and the question in that case, kind of below the surface, was the extent to which this, this no longer mandatory sentencing system could still retrieve some of the virtues I just mentioned that had existed when the mandatory sentencing system was still on the books. The specific question in Rita um, was whether a court of appeals in reviewing a sentence for reasonableness, whether, the, whether it was permissible for the court of appeals to adopt a presumption that a within-guideline sentence was reasonable. And the court decided, again, last term by an eight-to-one vote, that it was, that it would go along with this, even though, again, it understood that it nudged the system a little bit back toward a mandatory system. It didn't recreate a mandatory system, but it certainly leaned in that direction. So there were several important qualifications that the Supreme Court in Rita um, put in. First, it said that, the court, that a court of appeals did not have to adopt this presumption of reasonableness of a within-guideline sentence. Um, second, it said that the presumption would be fully rebuttable. Uh, third, that, it was not, that this presumption was not intended to cabin or even guide the actual imposition of sentence by the district judge, and fourth, and emphatically, that it did not mean that an, out, that an outside the guideline sentence should be viewed as presumptively unreasonable. But of course, that was, that was what became then pregnant for the next question. So now Gall and Kimbrough um, have arrived, the next two chickens to arrive at the roost. Probably Gall is the most logical successor to Rita and Booker, but I'm going to talk about Kimbrough first because it involves an issue that has actually been kicking around and has been a subject of considerable heated dispute for about 20 years, and that is the crack cocaine differential in sentencing. The question in Kimbrough is whether in the post-Booker world, a sentencing judge may depart downward from the, the advisory guidelines range based on his view that crack cocaine sentences are disproportionately severe compared to powder cocaine sentences. Uh, the Fourth Circuit said, no, he can't do that. Booker, yes, creates an advisory system, but this is going too far. In its brief in the Supreme Court, the government has conceded that a sentencing judge may depart based on his, his disagreement with sentencing commission policy. I view that as a damaging and avoidable concession given that it was, given that the whole engine in Booker was that a finding of sentence relevant facts, not sentence relevant policies, created the Sixth Amendment violation. But however that may be, the government has now conceded the point. 
What the government maintains, however, is that the sentencing scheme, that is this 100 to 1 uh, ratio of crack to powder sentencing, was mandated not so much by the Sentencing Commission, although it does appear in the guidelines, it was actually mandated by Congress in a 1986 act. Uh, And that it appears in the guidelines because Congress directed that, it it appeared there, that, that the Sentencing Commission is merely doing what Congress made clear its own policy was. Because Congress uh, dictated the ratio and has never stepped back from it, uh, the government argues that this is a legislative judgment, not a sentencing commission, and therefore under Booker, although Booker authorizes a district judge to view as merely advisory the sentencing commission's guidelines, it does not authorize district judges to view statutes as merely advisory, and therefore the 100 to 1 ratio should stand. Let me say one word here about this 100 to 1 ratio. This audience is probably sophisticated enough to know that the 100 to 1 ratio does not mean that crack sentences are 100 times the length of powder sentences. What it actually turns out to be in practice is that crack sentences for a given amount are about 50% higher than powder sentences for the same amount. Crack is is punished uh, more severely because of Congress's judgment uh, that crack is a more dangerous drug, that it is more readily accessible to children, that it is more addictive, and that it is more associated with gang violence. Those are the reasons, although there has been a racial tinge to this whole debate from the time it began. That is, the tinge being the the argument, which has merit to it as a factual matter, that blacks are disproportionately more involved in crack cocaine and whites disproportionately more involved with with powder cocaine. There are actual on-the-ground reasons related to neutral neutral and legitimate law enforcement objectives for punishing crack more seriously. In any event, The government has its argument. The defendant's argument in this Kimbrough case is that Congress never specifically said that the Sentencing Commission had to adopt this 100 to 1 ratio. Um, That, again, it is racially disproportionate, uh, irrational, and excessively harsh, and that the central point of Booker's remedy is to shift discretion away from these formulaic rules Uh, and the guidelines to a more nuanced approach uh, that takes a closer look at the personal characteristics of the defendant. Now, the conventional wisdom, I think, is that the government's going to lose this case uh, because we are living in the post-Burker world. We are living in an advisory um, guidelines world in which judges have been given far greater discretion than they have. I think the conventional wisdom is wrong, I think, I think the government is going to win, and this is why. There are three votes that I view as being in play here. Um, I believe that Scalia and Kennedy will be persuaded by the argument that the Solicitor General's brief makes quite well, I think, that this ratio actually is Congress's sentencing policy and not that of the Sentencing Commission. This is particularly true in light One thing that happened in 1996, as I say, this controversy has been going on for a long while. In 1996, the
the Sentencing Commission, not for the first time, recommended that there be a reduction in the disparity between crack and cocaine sentencing, and Congress, for the one, for the one and only time that has ever done this, blocked that Sentencing Commission action. That is a specific action by Congress, very strongly suggesting that it, that it is Congress that wants this ratio as it is. Uh, and there has been no congressional action since then to the contrary. So I think that Scalia and Kennedy are likely to be persuaded that this is actually Congress's sentencing policy and not something that can be rendered advisory as the guidelines have been. I think Breyer, who I view as the key vote in, in this case, will understand that permitting district courts, permitting each you know, sentencing judge in the federal system to adopt his own version of the relative severity of crack versus uh, powder cocaine would be unprincipled and would return luck of the draw sentencing in its starkest form. That is not what I read Justice Breyer as being about. Justice Breyer actually was one of the first sentencing commissioners, and I think he has a personal stake in the survival of the most important virtues that the guidelines brought to federal sentencing, and I think that will see him through in this case. I think there will be five votes for the government, and the government will win um, the Kimbrough case. The Gall case, I'll just say a little bit more about. I don't want to attack your time too much. Gall kind of presents the, uh, the elephant in the corner after Rita, uh, and that is whether courts of appeals may view outside the guidelines sentences as subject to a rebuttable presumption that they are unreasonable. Now, the answer to that question is almost surely no. Uh, Rita says practically as much. Um, so the question is actually put by the parties in a different form, and it's pretty interesting that the government and the defendant have very different ways of putting this question, much more so than usually exists in Supreme Court practice, where the Supreme Court grants cert on a particular question, after all. The government puts the question as this, um, uh, whether a court of appeals, quote, should require the strength of the justification for the sentence to bear a proportional relationship to the degree of the of variance from the guidelines. Well, as with most good advocates, of course, you know, well, of course, of course, the degree of variance should bear a proportional relationship to what the sentence actually turns out to be. The defendant puts the question very differently. The defendant uh, says the question is whether under advisory guidelines, quote, it is appropriate to require courts to justify an outside-the-range sentence with a finding of extraordinary circumstances. Well, it certainly sounds like the answer to that question ought to be no. I mean, we're living, I mean, we're living in an advisory system. That's the whole point of, of, of Booker. How can you now require courts, sentencing courts, to find, quote, extraordinary circumstances. I cannot imagine the government uh, winning uh, th this argument um, because, again, you count the votes. We know from his lone dissent in Rita that Justice Souter is not going to buy the government's position. He wouldn't even buy uh, a much watered-down version of it in, in the Rita case itself. We also know that Justices Scalia and Thomas are not going to buy it because in their concurrence in Rita, they said that they 
bought the notion only of procedural and not substantive review of the reasonableness of a sentence. And finally, it's very difficult for me to envision Justices Ginsburg and, Stee and Stevens buying the government's argument because I think their view will be that although the government's argument is ostensibly quite sensible, it's, it would exert too much of a gravitational pull back toward reinstituting what would become a de facto mandatory system or at, or at the very least a system that would be so pregnant with pressure on district courts to impose within guideline sentences as to effectively cripple uh, Booker's advisory-only regime. So I think the government is going to lose that argument, but it will win the case. The reason it will win the case are the facts of the case. Remember, under Booker, the ultimate question is, is the sentence reasonable? Um, Mr. What Mr. Gall did was he sold over 10,000 tablets of ecstasy over a period of several months. He made thirty to $40,000. His sentencing range was 30 to 37 months, and the district judge gave him nothing. No imprisonment. He got three years probation. If I'm the government, I'm arguing that you can adopt any standard you want, a sentence like that, for 10,000 tablets of a drug as dangerous as ecstasy is unreasonable under any standard. I believe that's what the court will say. Thanks, Bill. Um, and last, we have uh, Joan Larson, who um, spent time here at Sidley uh, and Austin and then went on to the uh, OLC at the Justice Department before heading out to Chicago to Northwestern to teach for a year and then moving on to the University of Michigan where she is a professor. And when I was talking about kind of the over-the-top uh, hysteria uh, that we've seen in, in the uh, academic world and commentary uh, from uh, some of the uh, law professors, uh, I was not talking about Joan. <laughs> so Joan's going to summarize the uh, voting cases and uh, I think cases that we all um, are anxious to hear about because I'm sure we haven't digested them yet, our grants, uh, or at least one from yesterday. So, thanks. Um, oh, no. <laughs> okay. I have a colleague who just returned from um, spending a semester teaching uh, law to undergraduates, actually, at the Air Force Academy. And he told me that at the Air Force Academy, it is the norm that if you start getting sleepy in class, the cadets just stand up. Um, and that's the norm. Um, I'm not going to make you stand up, but if anybody's feeling drowsy, apparently standing up works, so feel free because um, I'm last on the docket. I get to stand up, so I feel good about that. Okay. Um, Supreme, see, he stood up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Supreme Court has on its plate this term um, a trio of cases that deal with the constitutional right to vote. Um, I think I'm just going to talk about the one that was granted on Monday because time is growing short. Um, the other two deal with uh, parties' uh, First Amendment associational rights. If you want to ask me about them, I'm happy to talk about them. Um, but I think what's probably most interesting to the audience is the uh, voter ID case that was just granted by the Supreme Court um, Monday. 
Yeah. So um, that case is Crawford versus Marion County Election Board, and together with uh, its companion case, Indiana Democratic Party versus Rokita, um, it asked the Supreme Court to address the constitutionality of voter ID laws. Um, lots of states uh, have voter ID laws, but Indiana's is the most restrictive because Indiana requires that before a voter be um, allowed to cast a ballot, the voter must present photo identification. Um, other states have uh, ID laws, but you could bring in a utility bill or something else that has your name and address on it. It doesn't have to be a photo ID. Um, Indiana requires a photo ID. It can be a driver's license, a state-issued ID, a passport, um, other government-issued uh, ID. Um, the idea behind the law is obviously to prevent voter fraud, um, prevent somebody from showing up and claiming to be somebody that they're not, either an actual registered voter who then later turns up and can't vote because they've already voted, um, or a deceased voter or somebody who has left the district. That's the idea uh, behind the law. Uh, the Indiana law um, doesn't apply to people who vote by absentee ballot. It doesn't apply to people who live in nursing homes. Uh, it, anybody over the age of 65 can vote absentee, as can the ill, the disabled, and their caregivers. Um, State-issued photo IDs um, are available free of charge. Uh, and if you're an indigent and thus you couldn't afford to procure the documents that you need to get that ID, like a birth certificate, the state just waives the ID requirement altogether. Um, so we're not talking about money here. This isn't a poll tax. We're not talking about an outlay of cash in order to be able to vote. That would be unconstitutional, um, clearly. But we are talking about time, right? We're talking about people's time. Um, and it's a hassle. It's a hassle to go get a photo ID if you don't already have one. Um, now, lots of people, most uh, voting age people and eligible voters already have a photo ID. In fact, um, the petitioner's data, these are the people challenging the law, their data seems to suggest that in Indiana, 99% of the voting age population already has a photo ID, and that's just the voting age population. You subtract out of that eligible voters, right, or non-eligible voters. Um, it, those numbers seem a little high to me on a national basis, um, but I think conservatively we would say it's somewhere between 90 and 100%. Um, I'm not 100, over 90. Over 90% 90 of people already have a photo ID. That's indisputable, and Judge Posner relied on that fact heavily um, in writing his opinion for the Seventh Circuit. Um, but Look, there's somewhere between 1% and 10% of eligible voters who don't have a photo ID, um, and they have a constitutional right to vote. Uh, and so the question is whether requiring people to go get a photo ID infringes that constitutional right to vote, or unconstitutionally infringes it, I should say. And it's a hassle. It's a hassle to go get a photo ID. You have to um, present two forms of identification, um, most likely a certified copy of your birth certificate and proof of residency, so your utility bill or something like that that shows where you live, credit card statement, pay stub, something like that. Um, you probably have to take time off work to go down to the Secretary of State. Um, you might have to take public transportation in order to get there. These are burdens, and they're real burdens uh, on, people's, um, on people's time. Uh, the burdens are, of course, greater on the working poor, right? Um, it is more burdensome for um, people who aren't in the position we're in to go get an ID in order to cast a ballot. But even so, the question is whether that 
burden, which I think is a real burden, um, is sufficiently uh, onerous that it unconstitutionally infringes the right to vote. Um, every appellate court that's looked at this question so far, the Seventh Circuit is the only federal appellate court to have looked at it so far, but state Supreme Courts have addressed it. Um, and every uh, appellate court that's looked at it so far has said, no, that's not an unconstitutional burden on the right to vote. And I think the Supreme Court is likely to agree. Um, and here's why. Because the Supreme Court has never said that states must make it maximally convenient to vote. The court has recognized um, in as most uh, sort of forcefully in a case called Burdick versus Takushi that every voter law, every election law is going to burden your right to vote in some way. Um, so let's just think of some examples. Tuesday, we vote on Tuesday, not Monday, beginning of the week, not Friday, not Saturday or Sunday, Tuesday. That is not, that's not convenient, right? It's not convenient for anybody. You've got kids, you've got jobs, you've got things to do that make you crazy during the middle of the week. If you're going to go somewhere, it, it, it's a crazy day to vote on. Why do we vote on Tuesday? Well, you know why we vote on Tuesday? Because in, oh, I'm not going to get the date right. Some, Congress passed a statute in the late 1800s saying that Tuesday would be the day. Why? Because, well, if you were a rural farmer, you couldn't go, you needed to work on Saturday. You need to bring in your crops on Saturday. On Sunday, you needed to go to church. And you couldn't have it be on Monday because you've got a long ways to travel, so you can't make it Monday. It's got to be on Tuesday. Well, that's fine for a farmer in the 1860s, but it's not fine for us today, right? Tuesday, inconvenient. Um, and probably more inconvenient for the urban poor, right? I mean, I think it's a hassle, and I am remarkably privileged. Nonetheless, the Supreme Court has never suggested that Congress and the states must pick Saturday or Sunday instead. Where do we vote? We vote at fire stations, municipal buildings, um, basements of libraries, not places that we all go every day. But we don't need to vote there. The states could pick a different place, right? They could pick the supermarket or the shopping mall or the Internet or mail, right? All of those places would be much more convenient. And it is clear to me that there are people who don't vote, who are discouraged from voting because they have to go to some municipal building that's hard to get to. But if they could vote at Kroger, they would cast their ballot. That's not an endorsement of Kroger. Um, so the court has never said that the states need to make it optimally convenient. They can put, states can put burdens on the right to vote in order to effectuate some legitimate end of government. Here the end of legitimate end of government is preventing voter fraud. Um, and so it seems to me that the state um, or that the Supreme Court is likely to uphold it, in part because they don't want to get into the micromanagement of local elections. They don't want to say strict scrutiny is going to apply to every arguable impediment to the right to vote, and thus we have the courts need to decide whether the municipal building is actually the optimal place to hold an election rather than the supermarket or the shopping mall or the football stadium or wherever it might be. Um, now, some people um, have said a couple of things about, uh, about this law, uh, the Indiana law in particular. One is they claim there's no evidence of actual voter fraud, and I think in Indiana the record um, there is pretty barren. 
uh, the state didn't come forward and say, well, look, here's five people who've been prosecuted um, for voter fraud. Um, so I think that's right, that there is no record, at least uh, in the Crawford case, of documented cases of voter fraud. Now, um, the state claims, and, and I haven't actually looked at this data, but the state of Indiana claims that there has been demonstrated voter fraud in other states, Washington State, Wisconsin, um, Michigan, uh, some other states, and that Indiana should be allowed to piggyback off the experiences of other states um, on the theory that, look, it's not Indianans aren't um, necessarily more virtuous than um, Wisconsinites, and, you know, there's fraud everywhere. And, and that seems reasonable. Um, but even if that weren't true, even if they couldn't say, well, people commit voter fraud in Wisconsin, therefore we can infer, infer excuse me, voter fraud in Indiana, um, states don't normally have to demonstrate or document a problem before they take aim at it. The only time they have to demonstrate or document a problem before taking aim at it is when the court is engaged in strict scrutiny, when the court is going to strictly scrutinize the, um, the question at issue. And here, if the court is, we're back to the same place we just were. If the court's going to be engaged in strict scrutiny, that is deciding whether this is the optimally convenient um, requirement, then they're going to be into the questions of Tuesday and a 30-day notification, a 30-day advanced registration requirement, all the sorts of requirements that we have um, uh, that are commonplace uh, issues about voting. Um, one other thing I wanted to say about this case, uh, well, two other things. Uh, the, the problem on the other side is also undocumented. So we assume that there are people who will be discouraged from going to the polls if they have to go get uh, an ID card. And I think that's a very reasonable assumption. I think that some people won't vote who would otherwise vote because they have to go get this photo ID. But interestingly, the plaintiffs in the case before the Seventh Circuit couldn't find one. They couldn't find a single plaintiff who said, I don't already have a photo ID. I would vote if, if it weren't for this law, but because I have to go get a photo ID, I won't vote. So they don't have a lot of facts. Um, the petitioners don't have a lot of facts on their side. The respondents don't have a lot of facts on their side. We're in a factual void. Um, although I assume that there is some subset of people um, who will, in fact, be uh, discouraged from going to the polls because of this. Um, the last thing I want to say is um, you might say, well, gosh, the problem with the voter ID laws is that they just smell fishy. And they do. Um, all the voter ID laws are enacted by um, Republican legislatures. Um, Democrats don't like them. Republicans like them. Uh, the dissenting judge in the Seventh Circuit case called voter ID laws, quote, a not too thinly veiled attempt to discourage Election Day turnout by certain folks believed to skew Democratic. Um, and that might be right. I mean, maybe that's what's in the back of the legislature's minds. But we don't know. There is no allegation in this case that this was an intentional attempt on the part of Republican legislatures to disenfranchise Democrats. I mean, obviously, if the law said Democrats must show photo ID, Republicans don't need to, that would be unconstitutional, right? Um, the law doesn't say that, and there's no allegation in this, in um, the case before the court, that that's 
what happened in Indiana, that it was an attempt to target Democrats and keep them away from the polls. So I don't think that the court is likely to take any credence of, of those sorts of arguments. Um, I'm, I, I really think the court is going to uphold this law, um, and that's my prediction. Miss uh, Joan, um, all right. I'm going to uh, I'm going to call it audible here and uh, <laughs> change things around a little bit. Um, instead, of, we were kind of going to do another round, and obviously there's a couple cases that we uh, still were going to talk about, um, but there's obviously so much here. So I think what I'm going to do, if it's okay with the panelists, is we'll just open it up to questions, and uh, then you guys can. Uh, dip in on some of the cases that you might have thought we were going to talk about, uh, your thoughts on last term, your thoughts on this term, or, you know, obviously whatever. Is that okay, Lee? Yes. Or am I? have a microphone so people, because when you write to ask people, uh, will bring their Okay. Nina. Okay. Mr. Otis, I have a question that I have, I will ask you. I've asked everybody, and I don't have an answer yet from anybody. Um, there is not a single amicus brief filed on the government side in these sentencing cases. Not from the Sentencing Commission, which filed last time in Rita and Claiborne, but was really about neither of these subjects. Not from any law enforcement organization. Not even from members of Congress who in the past have filed. Why? So the government's out there alone. Actually, in a poor position to answer that question because all of my experience um, uh, was being in the government alone, and uh, <laughs> so the briefs I filed were not advocacy briefs, but, but the party's briefs. I I could speculate that one reason for that is, as I, as I tried to, to bring out. These are really confusing cases. We now are in no man's land. One of the odd and extremely unfortunate features of sentencing law now is that it's not really law um, in any really recognizable sense. You, you may have noticed from the questions that I read that the parties are presenting uh, in the Gall case as well whether it's appropriate to do this or whether a, a proportional, you know, requirement of proportionality for uh, a sentence that diverges from the advisory guidelines should be the rule. I mean, when I was practicing law in the U.S. Attorney's Office, I understood law to be rules, not what, you know, what should happen or what is appropriate. I understood it to be rules. We don't have rules anymore, and it could well be that potential amici see that <laughs> that it's not worthwhile to step into this quagmire. Uh, I mean, the real quagmire, in my view, is not in Iraq. The real quagmire is in, is in, is in, a, is in a legal system that says it's in the world of law, but really is in a world of something that looks like law and sounds like law, but in, in, in the world of sentencing now is not really law. And that, you know, that is a snake bit. Can I ask a follow-up question? Sure. About Kimbrough, that you, predict, you predicted that the government would win in Kimbrough. Yes. I don't think the government thinks it's going to win in Kimbrough. But um, 
there's, as you, when you're reading the briefs, the, and the, the thing that I'm frankly puzzled by is that there are mandatory minimums for uh, crack cocaine. And the judge in this case imposed the mandatory minimum. Where he got hung up, according to the Fourth Circuit, is that he didn't add four more years onto 15 that would have been required under the sentencing guidelines. And so I'm not quite sure, as I look at this, <laughs> it, it doesn't really have anything to do with 100 to 1 uh, ratio, except in the latter that's imposed by the sentencing guidelines on top of the mandatory minimums that, in fact, don't exist for many other crimes. Most other crimes don't have those kind. Ecstasy doesn't have that kind of a mandatory minimum. Otherwise, the guy, Mr. Gall, would have been sentenced to whatever the mandatory minimum was. Well, it, it seems to me that, that the Fourth Circuit um, got it right. Um, that the alternative, you know, yes, there are mandatory minimums uh, that deal with crack, although it is true, as you say, that there are not mandatory minimums in all other drugs. There are mandatory minimums in some other very dangerous drugs, for example, methamphetamine, as a mandatory minimum that is identical uh, to, to the crack mandatory minimum. Uh, and methamphetamine uh, historically has been mostly a white biker drug rather than a black drug. So the idea that, you know, the system, that this is a racist system designed, you know, to put blacks at disadvantage. Well, what the judge said is, look, I'm already sentencing this guy to 15 years. In the circumstances, it doesn't ever feel like it's enough for him. So why is, why is that not advisory? Uh, using the guidelines as advisory, what is it then that would make the guidelines somehow specially He's already sentencing him to 15 years based on, the, well, what he actually got was he got 10 years for the drug offense, and he got an additional, by statute, mandatory five years on the 924C1 use of a firearm in the commission of a federal felony, which is, a, as I say, is a mandatory consecutive five-year sentence. The problem you see is this. This judge said, look, this is enough. What is to prevent Unless, you know, the government is, is going to prevail and the Fourth Circuit rules prevail in this case, what is to prevent a different judge in a different courtroom or even just across the hall from saying, well, it's true that my, you know, my colleague Judge Jones thinks that crack sentences are too harsh. I don't think they're harsh enough. I've seen one victim of gang shootings in here after the next on account of these, uh, these crack wars. If, if I were Congress, I wouldn't do a 100 to 1 ratio. I'd do a 200 to 1 ratio. Once you unleash this lawless view, and in, in, in my view it is, it is lawless in the strict sense that there are no settled rules, once you allow completely back into the system luck of the draw sentencing, no one is going to like the results because, yes, in one courtroom you're going to see a judge who never uh, never encountered a defendant who couldn't be reformed with just one more chance, but in the next courtroom we're going to see a judge who never saw a defendant that needed a good, stiff sentence to protect the public. And in order to prevent that from happening, we can't, you know, we can't disregard Congress's stated policy about crack cocaine, in my judgment. 
A question for General Cruz. Under your theory of the case, if you were counsel for the government of Mexico, what would you advise the government of Mexico to do to protect its foreign nationals' uh, rights? And as a follow-up or tied up therein, um, if a foreign government views your theory of the case as leading to uh, spotty implementation of the treaty right, does that pose a risk for U.S. nationals traveling abroad? That's a terrific question. Um, Beginning with enforcement of the treaty prospectively, uh, Texas has never disputed, nor could we, that this is a binding treaty. It it, it is an obligation of the United States, and it is federal law fully binding upon the states. Uh, This case and and many of the other cases that, that are wrapped up with it arose out of the 1980s and 1990s, where unfortunately a great many members of local law enforcement were unaware of the Vienna Convention obligations. And so when they arrested someone, they prosecuted him for crime, and they were not reading the treaty obligations that were extant upon them. Uh, Since that time, both the United States State Department and state attorneys general have engaged in a very concerted effort to correct that problem. The State Department has, the the last time I checked the number was, sent out over 900,000 letters and communications with local law enforcement uh, and local judges and local prosecutors to make sure that they're all aware of this treaty obligation. The State Attorneys General, including the Texas Attorney General, have likewise done so, reaching out to, to law enforcement on the ground to prevent future violations. Secondly, with respect to this particular world court decision uh, and the 51 Mexican nationals at issue, uh, Texas does not dispute that there is, under the the optional protocol, an obligation for the United States to respond to this treaty through a, a political or diplomatic means. Now, Texas agrees with the United States that that obligation is not self executing, which means it doesn't become law automatically. Uh, but rather takes subsequent legislative action. And so one of the things we talk about in our brief is there are ways the president could have constitutionally done this. Uh, A couple we discuss at length. One could be uh, negotiating a specific treaty on this issue and submitting it for Senate ratification. Another could be proposing a statute, getting it passed by Congress and signing it into law. Both of those, the, the... distinctive feature of them is they involve another branch of government. And one of the overarching principles we urge in this case is that particularly when it comes to setting aside laws that are adopted by democratically elected legislatures, that basic systems of separation of power and federalism require the concurrence of more than than one branch. And so the president may not do so simply based on executive fiat. A third option, which we mention in the brief, uh, that would be a possible avenue and that, that, the legislat- that the president could do, is appointing an executive review board, say, for, for example, consisting of three retired judges who would review these 51 cases at issue and come to their own determination of whether there is prejudice. Assuming for sake of argument in those 51 cases they found prejudice in some smaller subset of those cases, What there's no doubt the president could constitutionally do is communicate that fact to the state pardon and parole boards and to the state governor 
along with the request that it would be given significant weight. And indeed, at the time this was being litigated last time, uh, Texas, in, in extensive communications with the Department of Justice, indicated a willingness to work with the Department of Justice and suggested at least the possibility that, that, that the relevant authorities in Texas might be willing to agree to cooperate and give considerable weight to any recommendation of an executive review board. Now, that wouldn't be binding and preemptive. To be binding and preemptive, what you would need is, is, is the acquiescence of either Congress or the Senate through the treaty ratification process. I have a question on the voting rights uh, case. If there's never been an appellate court case that came out against this and um, there isn't a conflict, why did they take it? Did they take it? For spe I'm asking to speculate. Hardest question. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean that you're you're right on. Normally, the court only takes. Um, I mean, we would expect a court to take the case where there's a split, and there's no split here. Um, we would also uh, expect them to take a case if, in fact, the Seventh Circuit had struck down Indiana's law. They almost always will take a case where a federal court invalidates a state law. Neither of those things are true here, um, and yet I confidently say that they're um, that they're not going to reverse um, and and maybe those signs um, should lead me to be less confident uh, my guess is that they took this so that they can get um, so the states can rest assured that their voting systems are okay um, before the 2008 elections um, so that they can be certain that they're not going to have challenges to the 2008 presidential elections um, you know, we saw the challenges in 2000 and 2004. If they take the case now, they can um, at least put their blessing on this one and things can and can move. But you are right that those are two traditional indicators that the court's going to reverse. On the law, I just don't – I don't see five votes for it. Um, Mr. Katz, um, is the government at all concerned that by arguing that the DTA creates a very broad substitute review suspension that it will later foreclose arguments when this actually sort of view comes up that, in fact, the, the review is much more limited at the D.C. Circuit? Already, um, had to can, – can you hear me okay? We, we've already, in fact, had to face that question – um, because we have DTA cases pending in the D.C. Circuit, including a, a very significant one called Bismullah, in which the D.C. Circuit has held that this statutory alternative, which surely was intended to be no broader than habeas, um, in fact requires the government to turn over to the court every piece of paper in any government file bearing on the enemy combatant determination and reasonably available, um, whatever that term exactly might mean, um, that kind of sort of broad disclosure and, and we think discovery, effectively discovery obligation is not something that one would ordinarily see in habeas 
Um, it's not something one would even see in a domestic criminal trial. And um, we um, obviously don't like that rule. We have petitioned for in-bank um, to try to narrow that holding. Um, so we obviously do have concerns about the DTA not becoming too broad. On the other hand, the broader the DTA becomes, the stronger our position in Boumediene becomes because um, the better the alternative to habeas looks by comparison to habeas. So we, we have competing tactical objectives, um, but you know we want to end up, whether, whether through habeas or the DTA, we want to end up with a system that makes appropriate accommodations for wartime exigency. And frankly, you could do that through habeas if your model of habeas were the rules that the Supreme Court applied in the World War II cases. Um, conversely, you could have a statutory review scheme like the DTA, which gets completely out of hand along the lines of what we think has already happened in Bismullah. So um, the devil really is in the details. And um, we are trying to um, strike the right balance between giving a fair measure of review, but being able to effectively fight a war. Um, I had a question about um, voting rights, um, Ms. Larson. Um, I guess there are two questions. I'll try to sneak two in. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Um, First one, the Indiana law. Um, when was it passed, and when is, I guess, it, uh, and when was it supposed to go into effect? I guess I'm getting at was there enough lead time as far as um, people's convenience? I mean, uh, it's you know, I don't know the answer off the top of my head. You do? I mean, was it matter? Was it matter of weeks? Yeah. I thought the answer was 2005, but I wasn't going to confidently say it. So, 2005. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Totenberg. Okay, but that's not, the, the, the the issue isn't well. They passed it like a week before the election, and they didn't have time to get. The, mm -hmm. So that's not really an issue. Okay. Um, second question I had um, about a year ago, President Bush signed the extension of the Voting Rights Act, um, the, the temporary provisions for another 25 years for the um, preclearance, and. Um, you know, that's based on, like, 50-year-old data. And so, like, you know, states in the South, Alaska, my hometown, Brooklyn, still has to pre-clear if there's any change to the voting rights, um, any sort of voting procedure. Right. Have there been any challenges uh, to that so far, and when do you expect that to go to the Supreme Court? That's a really great question, and I really wish I were really a voting rights expert. Um, the, the person you want to ask this question to is my colleague, Ellen Katz, who happens not to be here. But um, they, I think there was a, a case that they just heard it in the federal courts in D.C., right? Um, no, in the D.C. Circuit. Greg, take this question. Thank you. I think it was the D.C. Circuit. Um, there, there is writing a, my colleagues work all over the place. There, there is a pending case before a three-judge district court in Washington. Uh, being litigated by Greg Coleman, who many people in this room might know. Um, the case was briefed. It was argued about a week or two ago. And um, I don't know when the court will decide, but I, I, you know, I would expect it's a matter of um, 
weeks or a few months, something on that order. And I, I, given the importance of the issue, I would expect further review um, up the chain. And in fact, it's a direct appeal, so the court will will have to resolve it one way or the other. It can't deny cert. It could summarily affirm or reverse, but one way or the other, it has to address the merits of the Supreme Court. What is the name of the case? Versus Keisler. question to end it on. Um, so I just want to thank the Lee again. Thank all of you guys for coming. And I thought um, we might just kind of go down uh, the, the panelists here. If you want to have a last word on a prediction this term, um, a case that you might think might be surprising, but if uh, there's anything, uh, if you want to start, uh, Bill, is anything that you think we should be looking for, anything you might think will be surprising this term? And look, Ted, you have a lot of time to think about this. Hmm. I kind of feel like I've chipped in my predictions, um, so I'm going to leave. Yes, if they turn out to be wrong, I want you all to know that I have an evil twin brother who looks exactly like me. Sounds the same, too. Um, There's only one observation I I would have, um, not by way of a surprise. Greg knows um, these detainee cases uh, far better than I do. Um, I can only say that uh, a couple of very distinguished Supreme Court justices are known to have said the Constitution is not a suicide pact, and that whatever rules the Supreme Court adopts, they need to be rules that allow us to win the war that has been thrust upon us. General, any anything you think we should be looking out for, potential trends or... As something that might come as a surprise. Hmm. I think I'm going to pass to Greg. Glenn. To Glenn. Uh, well, I'd say two things. First of all, if you, if you didn't understand from my discussion of Stone Ridge the distinction between a primary violator and a secondary violator, the distinction would be between Joan and Bill who offered predictions and the other three of us who didn't. <laughs> um, and I would say that perhaps the sleeper case uh, for now, which will later potentially become the pinata case of the term, to take my poor Lily Ledbetter case out of the headlines, will be the uh, uh, grant uh, uh, of the case of Cracker Barrel versus Humphreys, mm-hmm. in which the court uh, granted cert on the question of whether or not you can state a retaliation claim under Section 1981 of the Civil Rights Act, a case in which there is no split in the circuits, but a um, vigorous dissent by uh, Judge Frank Easterbrook arguing uh, on uh, uh, that no such claim should be recognized and that uh, his reasoning for doing so, if adopted by a majority of the court, would, to use um, uh, former Solicitor General Freed's expression, uh, stink in the nostrils of the left, (laughs) uh, not only as to the result in the case, but as to the legal reasoning uh, that would be used and the fact that they took the case um, and it uh, flows from earlier decisions such as Patterson versus McLean Credit Union written by Justice Kennedy suggest 
that they might, that uh, when the term is over, uh, this case will be part of an omnibus civil rights bill, uh, which my poor little Lily Ledbetter case might still be part of. Can I, can I have my turn now? Sure. That I yes. uh, the only thing I wanted to say, um, and I don't have a prediction on this, is that um, we didn't talk about it, but um, everybody should be aware that, of course, the Second Amendment case is probably heading straight for the Supreme Court. Parker, which is now Heller, um, we may finally learn um, whether the Second Amendment actually guarantees an individual right or a, or a state um, right. Um, I, I think that's going to be an incredibly important case, um, but I don't have a prediction. Oh, come on. Uh, no. <laughs> I, I gave my prediction. Good conference. Um, just in terms of where the court is going, um, obviously Justice Kennedy drives outcomes. He's, in a sense, in the middle of this court. Um, but in, a, I think, a very different sense in which Justice O'Connor had been in the middle. Um, Justice O'Connor was sort of in the middle on just about every given issue and was averse to broad rulings and legal rules um, and sort of decided cases on, on their facts. Um, Justice Kennedy is in the middle in the sense that he tends to vacillate a little bit between the cohesive group of justices loosely described as conservatives and the um, now, now four and the um, cohesive group of um, four justices loosely described as judicial liberals. Um, but I think he's different in the sense that he tends to be um, fairly reliably in one camp or the other depending on the issue. And the generally, um, let's just call them conservative results from last term was as, as much a function of just the um, mix of cases that the court had by random chance. Um, you look at partial, partial birth abortion, he obviously... Um, doesn't like racial preferences. He's all, always been skeptical of campaign finance. He is um, as skeptical of as anyone, and that's the mix of leading cases you had last term. Um, what you didn't have on the docket were cases about um, judicial supremacy, cases about substantive due process, um, such as um, the gay rights cases. Um, Eighth Amendment cases um, where some judges might look to international tribunals. And in that whole universe of cases, Justice Kennedy is pretty consistently with the judicial liberals. Um, to just pick one example, there is a child pornography case on the docket next term. It's um, a little bit a follow-up to a, a case called Ashcroft versus Free Speech Coalition. Um, and the, the same um, very pro-First Amendment views of Justice Kennedy that caused him to vote with the, the Scalia camp um, in the campaign finance case um, might well predispose him the other way on, on a child pornography case. And I, I'm not in the weeds on it. I, I'm not going to definitively predict um, uh, that, that my employer will lose that case. But that's the kind of case that will be um, predictably difficult for the government given, um, given the views of um, a swing justice who um, um, you know, can lean decidedly against us in identifiable classes of cases. 
two concluding remarks. One following up on Joan's observation about the Heller case. Um, I, I agree. I think it's very likely the court's going to take the case. Uh, it was litigated in, in D.C. by actually Alan Gura, who's here and did a, a remarkable job challenging the D.C. gun ban. Um, and uh, there's a circuit split on the issue. Uh, Just Larry Silverman wrote a, a comprehensive opinion uh, affirming that the Second Amendment protects an individual right. I think the court is likely to take that case. Uh, Texas uh, supported uh, the plaintiffs in this case. Uh, in fact, I, I argued on behalf of Texas and, and 16 states uh, in the D.C. Circuit in the companion case to Heller, uh, urging that, that the Second Amendment does protect an individual right. And I think this is a it really is a threshold question because this case is not about what, where reasonable minds may differ on what gun control is and isn't appropriate. I think that will be litigated in, in subsequent cases to come. This case is really about whether the Second Amendment exists as, at all in any practical sense for any individual in this country because the argument on the other side is no individual may in any, any circumstances claim any right whatsoever under the Second Amendment, uh, that it is only a collective right of the militia, which is, frankly, fancy lawyer speak for a non-existent right. And, and I, think, I think the court is, is, is likely to agree with the D.C. Circuit. Uh, you've got the D.C. Circuit and the Fifth Circuit both squarely concluding that it's an individual right. You also have such, such noted uh, right-wing zealots as, as Larry Tribe, uh, and, and Sanford Levison also agreeing it protects an individual right. And I think the court will as well. Um, a, a final concluding point, uh, I very much agree with, with Greg's analysis uh, and, and Jan's analysis of the term. I think with respect to the much reputed uh, turn to the right of the court, I, I, I think as, as Mark Twain observed, uh, rumors of the court's demise have been greatly exaggerated. Um, I think it has to do with the particular happenstance of cases that came before the court this term. And on all of the big ones, there was a very simple pattern. There were cases on which the pre previous decision had been a 5-4 decision, usually authored by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, and usually feature, featuring Justice Kennedy in strident dissent. And in every one of them, when he now has five instead of four, his dissent became the law of the land. I think if you hit different issue areas where he's not in vocal dissent in the 5-4, you'll have dif different outcomes. And, and it's one of the most striking observations of the term is how many opinions from Justice Sandra Day O'Connor were essentially bulldozed through. And it, it leads to, I think, an, an observation that there may be an inverse relationship between the degree of power a justice assumes while on the bench and the legacy he or she leaves. Because Justice O'Connor decided so many cases on a facts and circumstances approach that did not yield bright lines, the current court is, is according very little precedential respect to what were her individual subjective decisions for some two decades. And I would hazard a guess that justices who advocate bright lines such as Scalia and such as John Paul Stevens, both will leave a far longer legacy because their precedents will command more respect than at least this term, Justice O'Connor's precedents, commanded in this court. Right. I mean, it, it, again, when we think about it, I, I think you have to think about the difference in influence and power. 
and um, particularly as we move forward as well. So anyway, thank you guys again, and thanks again, Lee, and see you next year.